0: Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a commercial real estate podcast that brings along attorneys and real estate professionals to talk about real estate concepts and issues. Today, we have a great guest. We have Matthew Mason of Conway McKenzie. Matt is an excellent uh, guest. I just finished the podcast and it was really super fascinating i think you're all really going to enjoy it what we talked about is essentially the coming challenges in the retail market for years people have been predicting the demise of the commercial real estate and just that we've been on a run for too long we talk about the recession but matt is one of the few people i've met who's really had a, a coherent explanation of what challenges we're facing, what exactly it is, and it's not all doom and gloom, but there's a fair amount of doom and gloom. And he sort of explains what we're seeing, how we're gonna get around it, what's doing well, what's not doing well. And I think it comes at a really a perfect time because the Chicago Tribune just had an article that there was more store closings in the first half of 2019 than in all of 2018. And he, Matt and his colleague, Warren Leach, just had an article that's really fascinating on Conway McKenzie's website about uh, the new retail reality and what to do going forward. I think that that's a great article. That'll be in our show notes. And that one talks about how Aeropostale, Bebe, J. Crew, Quicksilver, Rue21, Wet Seal, a lot of these stores are closing and there's many more retailers like Dress Barn that aren't even mentioned, um, that I haven't mentioned right now that are in serious distress. And so it creates a lot of issues uh, going forward in terms for borrowers and for lenders when you have all of these store closings going on. And so Matt is uh, he's a consultant, and but he's also an attorney. He's also a real estate professional. He's also managed and uh, many different properties over many years His let's, let's get into his bio, he, Matt spearheads Conway McKenzie's real estate industry vertical. He is an accomplished in assisting institutional clients, lenders, and private investors with distressed real estate and has served as a court-appointed receiver for more than 200 retail office multifamily and mixed-use projects. He has significant experience with large and office retail assets, including malls, multi-state portfolios, and lifestyle centers throughout the country. He has uh, completed 14 million square feet of leases with a value in excess of $885 million. Prior to joining Conway McKenzie, he was the Senior Vice President of Commercial Real Estate Special Advisor to the CEO at McKinley Inc., where he managed 31.5 million square feet, $1 billion po- portfolio of retail, office, industrial, mixed-use properties throughout the United States. He previously was the real estate counsel in-house for Kmart and Sears Holdings. And he talks about that a little bit on the podcast, where he oversaw real estate and legal matters pertaining to retailers, 300 plus stores. And during that time, he completed real estate transactions in excess of $1.2 billion. So Matt has seen... A lot of things, and he has a great insight into what's happening right now and what to do going forward. So that you're really going to enjoy this this episode. I know that I did. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, feel free to contact me at pcoover at clarkhill. dot Clark Hill is a national uh, law firm with 25 offices across the United States, more than 650 attorneys and professionals that can handle any area that that you need help with, and If you want to learn more about Clark Hill, please check out our website. I'm also going to put links to the Conway McKenzie uh, website in the show notes. And uh, feel free to contact us if you have any questions or if you want to know more about this topic or others. Matt Mason of Conway McKenzie coming right up. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Phil Coover of Clark Hill. Today we have with us Matt Mason of Conway McKenzie. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Today we're gonna to talk about retail. We're gonna talk about Conway McKenzie and we're gonna talk about what we're seeing in the commercial real estate landscape. I hear a lot of people over the past, I mean three, four, five years uh, predicting a recession or the demise of the economy or some sort of pullback. But I haven't really talked to anyone who's got a a coherent, thoughtful description about what's going on in retail and in commercial real estate until I met Matt. And, And Matt, we were talking at ICSC a little bit after. I just felt like Matt and Conway McKenzie has a great pulse on what's happening in the commercial real estate market and what we might see going forward and what sort of challenges we might have. So, uh, Matt, before we get into all of the the nuts and bolts of it. Um, Why don't you just give us a little bit of background about who you are and and who Conway McKenzie is. Great, thank you. Uh, So Conway McKenzie is a global
1: management consulting and financial advisory firm serving clients in the private and the public sectors. My practice is focused primarily on commercial real estate and with a heavy emphasis on retail and retailer advisory work. So while my colleagues are out there trying to uh, reposition companies and and save overall companies, I'm taking a little bit more targeted view of the real estate with those companies, um, and also a with a focus. I have a focus on the real estate lending side, especially when there's some some disputes between the borrowers and the
0: sellers, borrowers and and the lenders. Fantastic. Um, And also, we should know you're a fellow attorney. I am. Yeah, I am. But you've you've drifted away from the, the private practice of law. I'm jealous. You've it, gotten it, away.
1: Even more than drifting away, I made the decision after law school to avoid it altogether. So I, uh, I, I quickly realized that I, I want to be more on the in-house side, but I really valued the education of, of, of a legal background. So after taking the bar, I've really focused on the development side uh, with a particular focus of retail having worked in-house at uh, uh, doing in, in-house development for retailers, as well as having unique experience as
0: in-house counsel at Kmart during their bankruptcy and, and later through their acquisition of Sears. Oh, I bet you saw a lot of stuff as, in that role. I mean, it says on your bio that you, <clears throat> you uh, oversaw real estate transactions in excess of 1.2 billion. Yeah. That was a B, yeah those out there and just missed it. <laughs> it was definitely a go-go few years at, at Kmart. So after the
1: filing of the bankruptcy um, and the the hedge fund taking over control of the company, we worked on a couple of transactions, most notably a sale of about 50 stores to Home Depot and a, and a sale of about 50 stores to Sears pre-merger that, uh, that accounted for about a billion dollars. And, and it was that cash that really uh led to the combination of Kmart Sears
0: and the fact that they're still around in some form or fashion today right yeah and all that uh, influx of cash from those deals is I'm sure provided an avenue to move forward yeah. um so let's let's dive in <clears throat> a little bit to to what's going on I Matt and his colleague Lauren leach also have a great article that they put up recently. Um, where you're talking about a lot of stores that have been closing recently. And then, you know, also on July twenty first, the Chicago Tribune had an article about stores closing. We're recording this on July twenty fourth, probably release it in early August. And we're just I'm seeing articles crop up that, that are factual, that aren't just trying to scare people. They're saying, no, no, these these stores are closing. So why don't you tell us what you're seeing? So at, once, once the, the real estate crash happened in
1: uh, 2007, 2008, real estate really took a dive. Uh, it led to a lot of store closings, which in turn led to a lot of distress in the overall real estate market. You had a lot of foreclosures. Uh, the other side of my business, I, I do a lot of receivership matters around the country. That was a, it was a huge part of the overall commercial real estate market in my practice during, during that period. Since that time, as properties have traded hands, uh, post foreclosure, and retail and the economy has recovered, commercial real estate's really been on a pretty remarkable uh, market run over the last 10 years. Um, There seems to be a general consensus that uh, the good times can't last forever and that it's going to come to a close. The only difficulty is no one exactly knows what's going to trigger that or when it's the fundamentals are all still very sound. Uh, What we are seeing, though, is the underlying retailers are either struggling or doing fantastically well. There doesn't seem to be a lot of people in the middle. So if you look at what's happened over the last few years, store closures have been at record highs each year, each year they they, they tend to get a little to get uh, more than the previous year. So for instance, last year, national retailers announced about 5,400 store closings. That equated to about 38 million square feet uh, being dumped on the market. Um, This year, that number is already at about 8,000 store closings that have been announced through the first six plus months of the year. Uh, That includes yesterday, GNC's announcement of another 900 stores, mostly in mall-based locations.
0: Yeah, not to interrupt you, but the the Tribune article was saying that there's been more store closures announced in just the first half of 2019 than all of 2018. Absolutely, yeah. 5,400 for all of 2018, and
1: we're at 8,000 and we're into the middle of July. It's pretty remarkable. Now, where 2019 is different than 2018, even though there were substantially less store closures in 2018, they accounted for a much larger amount of square footage. So, in, in the first half of 2018, the announced store closings represented about 72 million square feet, uh, or I'm sorry, about 110 million square feet, where more store closings this year is translating into about 73, 74 million square feet. So what that tells me is, the store closings happening last year were much bigger stores. So you had a lot of department stores closing and a lot of big box stores. This year, the pendulum has swung a little bit, where a lot of the store closings are the smaller, you know, the the three to five, 6,000 square foot tenants as opposed to the 60,000, 80,000 square foot tenants. So if you look at a lot of the store closing numbers, they're being dominated by, as I mentioned, GNC. Charming Charlie's, Payless, Dress Barn, those types of retailers that are substantially smaller footprints than the stores that were closing last year.
0: So yeah, I remember last year, H.H. Like H. Gregg alone, that's a lot of square footage. It's a huge stores. Space. Yeah, just enormous. But it's a little bit unnerving to see the, the different brands that are closing and sort of a, a wide variety of brands. Are you seeing any pattern to all of these store closings that are happening in 2019? Apparel
1: seems to be getting hit the hardest. Um, There's, when I look at even in the shopping centers that we're managing, the new store openings, of which we can talk about that, that there are quite a few, very few are in apparel. It seems like as as a country we're over-appareled and that seems to be taking a a big step back. Um, So apparel has been being hit hard, especially women's apparel. Uh, furniture has, has been hit pretty hard. Yeah, the way women aren't buying clothes anymore? They're buying them in a different way. Yeah. So if, if you were to look at you know, some of the examples of, of what I was talking about, some of the stores that have gone out, and we'll even go back 10 years, the Coldwater Creeks and the Chico's and Ann Taylor Lofts, and a lot of those places don't exist like they did 10 years ago. A lot of those sales have been picked up. Women are not, haven't stopped buying clothes in the last 10 years, they're just buying them differently. So you see a shift in uh, more, sa- more apparel sales heading to stores like Target. Uh, you see a Forever 21, uh, H&M, that lower cost fast fashion is really growing. So there's been a move towards cheaper clothing in a lot of segments that is a little bit more disposable. So it's cheaper. You're not going to buy it for a lifetime, but you're going to buy it for a season and then you're going to move on and buy, buy, buy some additional clothing. So it's just a changing
0: market in how people are shopping. I ran a very scientific study this morning on the train in. I ran these theories by my wife. All right. And So we were on the train on the way in and I was telling her about, your, she's like, honey, who are you having on the podcast today? I was, I was telling, telling her about you. But we ended up having a great discussion based on your article because I was... I was telling her about your article and how I was saying that um, you know the middle end, the J Crews and sort of the uh, Abercrombie stores aren't doing as well because of the change in twenty to thirty years. And when when we were kids in you know the eighties and nineties, people would spend 75, 90 bucks on a shirt, and how currently the the teenagers are wanting to go to Forever Twenty One and and get lower cost items, it might be more on trend. And so her theory is, we had a couple different theories we're kicking around, some of which you mentioned in here we're agreeing with. Uh, It's just that the kids today are more interested in just having something more on trend. They can wear three to five times and then pass it off or forget about it in their closet. Um, Whereas 20, 30 years ago, you'd buy something you'd hope to wear over a couple of years, many times. And then also, one theory that I posited, again, very scientific, a lot of factual a lot of statistics going into this, is just the shrinking middle class. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on just with the, the growing wealth disparity, whether the, the sort of the, mid, the mid-range, the middle class is uh, not it, the, What we're seeing in retail with the high end and the low end doing well and the kind of the evaporation of the middle, is. I'm w- wondering if that is relating to a greater macroeconomic trend of, of the middle sort of evaporating in, in the world.
1: I, I 100% agree with that. So what what I'm seeing is the struggles in retail are mirroring the overall economy in this country, that you have an, an increasing gap between the haves and the have nots. So for any of you that's, uh, that's been by a Louis Vuitton store recently, you know, they're not hurting for business. There's a lot of people shopping at that higher end. And if you look at the other end, the fastest growing retailers right now are the value and the discounters. So I mentioned a lot of the stores that are closing, the top five retailers for store openings are Dollar General, Dollar Tree, Family Dollar, Aldi, and Five Below. Mm-hmm. So TJ, the TJX brands are growing like crazy as well. But it's those the ones in the middle that are a little bit more of a commodity. So if you think of, you were talking about when we were growing up, you know, the JCPenney, the Sears, the Coles, kind of that that blue collar, those are the stores that are struggling. And I think some of it is people have either traded up or they've traded down. The other part of it is that middle gap to something that's not that different. The merchandise you can buy at a JCPenney isn't all that different than what you can buy at a Sears or a Kohl's. That's that band that's very much a commodity that you can buy online because you're not that invested in it. You know, a a, a generic set of pajamas, isn't gonna be that different from any of those stores. So those are, the, those are the categories that are more susceptible to online shopping, the Amazons, the things that you're not emotionally invested in. Uh, when you get into the high end, those are things that are not available online, and there's more of an experiential that people want when they're shopping for that. And the the discounters have become as much about the thrill of the find as, as the actual dollars they're saving. There's a reason that the TJX stores are doing so well. And For those of you not familiar with TJX, it's TJ Maxx, Marshalls, HomeGoods, is their business model is, is contingent on, you have to come into the store to see what they have. You don't go to those stores saying, I'm going there to look for X. You have to go there to see what they have, and what they have is going to be a bargain, but they've, they've come up with this hook that gets you going into the stores. The dollar stores and the deep discounters are similar in that regard in that that you're going in there to actually shop as opposed to walking in for something specific. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Yeah. No, that, yeah. The experience of the high brand as well as the experience of the, the bargain hunters, you have to get a reason to approach it rather than just, you know what you want and then you have to go find it. Yeah. Um, the other theory I should mention uh, that my wife thought of is just that the the discount retailers are actually producing a higher quality than they were 20, 30 years ago. That, is that when she used to buy Forever 21 as a teenager, you know, the strings are hanging yeah. out and they're low quality. But now Target is working with designers and they're coming up with really... You know, pretty, pretty nice stuff for, for reasonable value and so you can find better quality at the, the discount prices. 100% agree. I think that the other thing that's a big
1: change probably than uh, when we were growing up or in college is the younger shopper today is much less brand conscious than previous, previous generations. So, we can think back to our college days that Abercrombie and Fitch was the hot thing. Mm-hmm. Kids don't, don't want to pay $80 for, for a sweatshirt anymore, so that with their logo emblazed on it. So, there's less of a premium on the brand, especially kind of that, that mid tier brand, than there used to be. And a lot of that is it's not that the teenagers aren't spending money, it's they're spending it in a different way. When we were teenagers, you'd go to the mall and you'd buy your Abercrombie sweatshirt, you'd go to buy a Gap T-shirt or something like that. Now teenagers will, will spend their money at H&M or Forever 21. They don't have brands. So they're saving the money there, but they're redeploying those funds elsewhere. So you know, 15 years ago, kids were more about the brands. Now they're spending those same dollars, but they want phone accessories. We, that was a whole category that didn't exist. Now, they're more the status more is now more on your phone, and some of the technology that didn't exist before. So they're they're still spending the dollars. They're just spending them differently and
0: increasingly away from from uh, mass logo apparel. Yeah, interesting. I mean, there's there's like a whole categories of. Video gaming and, and other sort of accessories you can buy through apps. Uh, then I don't even you know it doesn't even <laughs> come into my brain. But there's tons of money going into it. Um, so all right, if we have these stores that are closing and we have brands that are really struggling, some of which are already in bankruptcy, some of which are headed that way, what does that mean for our real estate market? Well, uh, there's it's not all doom and gloom.
1: So there are a lot of store openings happening as well. I think the, the store closures get a lot of the headlines um, because it, it continues to signify kind of a, the changing of, of retail and some of the brands that we've known for a long time going away. But there's a lot of, a lot of stores that are in growth mode as well. I mentioned um, the, the discounters. You know, Dollar General is opening 975 stores. That's, that's a staggering amount of stores, and that's just one brand. So they're opening stores. And the other thing that you're, that I'm seeing is there is less and less of a distinction between online sit- retailers and bricks and mortars retailers. It used to be you were in one camp or the other. What you're seeing is this gradual blending of the two. So if you were to look at some of your traditional retailers, such as a Walmart, the biggest biggest growth in their stores is not in bricks and mortar, it's online. They're figuring out how to play the online game. On the other hand, online-only retailers have realized they need some sort of a physical presence. So if you're a Warby Parker, if you're an Untucket, if you're some of those stores, you're opening Physical stores, because not only do they become brand ambassadors for you online and helping to drive sales online, it's building that that uh, that trademark in your head as you walk down the street. You see, Amazon has uh, not so much dipped their toe in it anymore; is they're moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. The Amazon Go stores, at some point, will be ubiquitous. They'll they'll be 7-Elevens, and everyone else will mimic that. So. Amazon's not going to stop being an online retailer. They're just going to figure out how to blend the two worlds together. And that, that really started for them with the Whole Foods acquisition.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's a it's a completely different setup. I have visited, frequented frequent one myself. Yeah. Um, all right, so I, there's another thing, kind of shifting gears in, you do not to talk too much about the doom and the gloom, but one of the the lines of business that you have, and one thing, one type of service that you provide is the receivership aspect. And tell everyone um, what really is a receiver, and how do you get um, what's what is your role when you're placed as a receiver? Absolutely. So, real estate receiverships typically arise due to a
1: loan default. Uh, on behalf of the borrower, and it, the receivership is generally uh, sought by the lender to protect the, and preserve the collateral during the litigation. The underlying real estate loans can be any number of, of, of functions. They can be a private equity loan, a bank loan, a commercial mortgage-backed security, anything that, that's uh, using real estate as a collateral. The receiverships typically are are done in state courts, but can also occur in federal courts as well. Um, the interesting thing about the, about a receiver is it's an arm of the court, so the receiver does not work for the borrower or the lender in this. It's while it may be proposed by the by the lender in many cases under the terms of the loan loan agreement, you're appointed by the judge and you work for the judge, so the receiver's job when he steps in is is to be a neutral party between the debt and the equity and, and the goal really is to maximize the value of of the collateral on behalf of all parties. So what does that look like? In, in my receiverships, typically I'm taking a a full control of the asset. Um, I'm in charge of the property management, the asset management, the leasing, the disposition, or whatever. Whatever terms are included in the receivership order, but in, in essence, the receivership, the receiver is in full control of the of the asset, reporting to the judge. The receiver generally stays in place through either the pendency of the foreclosure, at which point the lender will take over title, or there's a sale of the property, um, at which point the the proceeds of the sale of that are given back to the lender to pay off the debt, with any excess funds returned to to uh, the equity, um, or there's an agreement between the party that, that settles the matter or the loan is restructured and, and put back in compliance. Um, it, it's it's a very effective route of settling a, a, a dispute in real estate because a, it, it stops a, an immediate rush to foreclosure to take the property back by having a neutral party that steps in and um, is trying to do whatever it can to reposition the
0: asset and to create as much value for all the various stakeholders. Absolutely. I mean, I well, so just to sort of say another way is uh, when there's a foreclosure, what the judge is essentially saying when the judge appoints the receivers, they're saying, all right, there's been some sort of alleged loan default, looks like there's some sort of loan default. This is going to take a while to sort out. I need somebody to take control of this property to make sure that everything is being handled while all these other issues are decided. I think what's really cool is that you're also um, a member of the bar. And so you're also an officer of the court. I imagine the judges find that have a little bit of, um, they feel more comfortable appointing somebody who who understands the obligations that they have to the court. And um, and then probably makes them, yeah, have a little more comfortable, have a little more sense of security knowing that they're Their agent is is also a member of the bar. Very much so. So, one of the first things in every receivership
1: hearing, I always try to attend those in person, is make myself available for any questions that the judge may have. Understand that the fact that the judge understands that by virtue of the receivership that I that I'm fully cognizant of what my role is and who I work for, which is the court. And that being an attorney, I have a full understanding of of those obligations, does make the judges feel a little bit more secure in how this is going to be run. Because at the end of the day, it's the the judge's receiver. It may be proposed by the parties, but you work for the judge. So the fact that you understand your obligations to the court, as well as the various parties, is definitely very helpful.
0: Also, what I wanted to ask you is, I came out of law school in 2007, was very excited about doing a bunch of commercial real estate deals, and then I found very quickly that there were none anymore. And there, was, there wasn't any for four to six years after that, in 2008, to uh, 2012, or 13, or very few. And so I ended up having to do a lot of receivership work, a lot of foreclosure work, and working on these sorts of distressed assets and helping receivers report to the court. And I remember 2008, you know, when, when of course the real estate tanked and the economy tanked, people didn't even, a lot of people didn't even understand how it worked or uh, how to report to the court. We had to, everyone had to learn sort of the basics on the fly. I think most people have a much better understanding of it now, but I have seen it taper off a little bit. It started in 2015, 16, 17. And I was just wondering, have you seen it? Uh, have you seen an uptick recently in the amount of receiverships that you're either being appointed on or, or being in the running for or being consult or consulting on. Uh, do you think that it's increased in, in the recent past six months or a year? Absolutely, it, it, it's, a, it's a great insight on, on your part. Um, having gone
1: full circle during the, the last crash and having started Doing receiverships when the economy was good and the market was good before there were the whole wave of receiverships back then. I, I've kind of got to see this full circle. So we hit the high point of receiverships in about 2014. Um, had the grew the portfolio to about 21 million square feet at at one point, which is a which is a very large national portfolio. Um, I've done about 200 receiverships around the country, so I, I've wow. seen them all over the place. I I would say what I'm seeing right now to me is very similar to what I was seeing in 2007. So 2007, for those of you who remember, the commercial real estate market was very strong, very similar to how it's been for the last few years. However, I was still doing receiverships and workouts at that point. The difference being the things that I was seeing were the most distressed or the most over leveraged the the lowest um, the lowest assets that we're going to have problems first, so that's what I'm seeing today as well. So while the overall market is good, there, I've seen a significant uptick in the last eight months or so um, compared to the previous two or three years. So and that that's coming in the form of receiverships where borrowers have been unable to refinance their properties. They've lost some major tenants and they're seeing uh, unable to make debt service. And a corollary to that is I'm also seeing in, in my practice a lot of demand for uh, my time as an expert witness in litigation support matters. Ah. So even if it's not a to the point of a receivership yet, there are at least some partnership disputes and things that are always the precursor to a larger a larger crisis. So as as the market turns, which it's going to have to at some point, what you'll see is working through the, the chain of the most distressed stuff going and having problems, you'll start to see it rise up the stack a little bit. I don't see it being anywhere near what we saw in 2008, 2009, but that was an anomaly just by how large it was. But the next cycle will be, will create a lot of problems for a lot of people, even if it pales in comparison to kind of a once in a generation crash that we saw 10 years ago.
0: Right, right. Um, That's comforting that it's not going to be as bad as 2008. Um, Do lenders or borrowers, for that matter, ever bring you on for consulting sort of pre-litigation, pre-foreclosure to say, matt if there's a lender say matt you know we don't think this we've seen the financials here we've seen the store closings. we don't think this asset's doing well you know can you give us any advice as a lender on how to reposition the asset kind of get you ready for the foreclosure or, or a borrower saying matt we got a lot of store closures do you have any any advice on what we can do to turn this thing around before we start hitting in some serious defaults? Both. So um,
1: some of my contacts on the lending side, thankfully, will will call me before they make a loan. And just to, to get my opinion oh, on good. that, sometimes the best advice you can get is something that keeps somebody out of trouble. They tend to remember that down the road that, Hey, that was a good good decision when they see what what happens. So sometimes that's the most effective I can be is to look at an asset and say, "Here's the problems I foresee in the future," and maybe that's the difference of them never making the loan in the, in the first place. Um, but once the brokers love that, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but there's always someone else that'll make the loan. So, <laughs> um, so and then also on the lenders, continuing on the lender side. Sometimes that they're calling me to consult before they've instituted receivership or foreclosure actions, because lenders typically don't wanna be in a hurry to take back a property they think is gonna to continue to suck cash. So looking at that, I, I can kinda of tell them, he, here's where this value is and here's the problems i think you're going to encounter and sometimes that leads to them just working out some sort of agreement with their with the borrower whether that's a discounted payoff whether that's a restructuring of the loan to provide some short-term relief sometimes in the lender it's in the lender's best interest not to rush to take this back so how do we figure out a way to keep the per, to keep the person in there keep them operating that this and not not take on that liability Similarly, I'll get calls from owner developers on what I'm seeing from my retailer advisory side, where do we? Where do I think there is going to be problems based on the different categories? Where are there opportunities to increase the the NOI of the property? Where are some opportunities to stabilize the property? Which is you know it, it's it's fun to be brought into that and try to avoid problems in the future. Whether you're advising a borrower or or a lender.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um, kind of reminds me of just legal issues where sometimes people bring you in early and it will an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of of cure. Is that right? I think Uh, so, I think that is right. Um, But you know, or oftentimes it's too little too late. But uh, that's smart what you're saying about banks. I have seen instances several times where a property is simply cash flow negative and then you add a receiver on top of the equation and it takes a receiver time to do anything worthwhile to to restructure it was easy the borrower would have been doing it Um, and so now a lender has a situation where they have the cost of receivership and management on top of the um, non-performing loan, and that can be challenging so that that's really interesting to hear you say sometimes they look at it and they say well maybe we should just you know take our foot off the gas pedal pull back a little bit and maybe we'll let the problem, the problem solved itself. Yeah. Absolutely, if, if you're a
1: lender and you have a property that's in a negative cash flow situation, you're gonna think twice before you step into that situation, now you're the one on the hook funding these deficiencies. It, it's one thing if your loan isn't being repaid, it's another if your loan's not being repaid and now you're funding operations. So sometimes it's it's just making the decision between two bad decisions and just figuring out which is the less painful.
0: Absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. Well, uh, Matt, you know what? I know that we've talked a lot about store closings and receivership work, but I thought it would just be great to talk a little bit more about Conway McKenzie broadly and uh, what services you all offer and and how people should reach out to you. Absolutely. So our, our firm is, as I mentioned, um, full service
1: management consulting firm. We have a heavy emphasis on turnaround management and restructuring uh, across all industry types. We also do a lot of uh, performance improvement of existing businesses, whether it's real estate or or other companies, of ways to just increase some productivity. Doesn't mean that they're distressed or they're, they're not doing well, but We have a lot of industry knowledge um, of different ways to to work around the edges and maybe increase some efficiencies. And uh, another part of, of our business that's been very successful recently is the due diligence advisory. So we have someone that's looking at buying something, whether it's a piece of real estate, whether it's a company, what are the opportunities uh, involved in that company? Where do we think there's some some opportunities to increase productivity? Where do we think the market's not pricing in some of the benefits of this company? And uh, giving giving our clients an advantage when it comes to even bidding on the company. And then once our clients are successful in acquiring the, the business or the company, of implementing those process improvement and really kind of getting them off to to a a great start. So we place interim CEOs, interim CFOs, management consultants around the country almost daily. Um, So that's something we we do a lot. And then my practice on the real estate side, it's, it's really anything where there's some sort of level of activity, buying, selling, distress, uh, retailers anything like that that we really focus my practice on, on that piece of it and uh, so far it's been it's been a great uh, great market and we, we think there's gonna be a lot of opportunities in the future as well
0: it's oh, really awesome how many offices are you where are, are you located geographically we're
1: in 10 offices throughout the country we are in uh, I'm in the Detroit office so we're in Detroit New York Miami Cleveland Dallas Houston Los Angeles I'm sure I'm missing one or two somewhere, but uh,
0: we're, we're we're around the country. We're easy to find. And, and speaking of finding you, Matt, if anyone's listening and wants to get in touch with Matt, um, we will put up a link to his bio and a link to Conway McKenzie's website in the show notes. And what's, what's the best way to reach out to you? Uh, and
1: phone, email, any, any way works. I'm always available and always happy to... Uh, uh, to talk and shed any insight that I can.
0: All right, well, we'll let you out of here. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for, for all your insight. We really appreciate your, your expertise. Thanks, Phil, appreciate it.
1: No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice And no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill PLC. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests and not necessarily Clark Hill PLC.